Hello, and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 48. We're going to be heading across the pond back to the United Kingdom, and our story today takes place in the early 1900s. We're covering a very interesting case today that resulted in major changes in British legislation and also the potential execution of an innocent man. Today's episode is on John Christie. Two different murderers were arrested and prosecuted at the same unremarkable three-story house in a cul-de-sac in London's Notting Hill. John Reginald Christie's home at 10 Rillington Place became known as the House of Horrors. He was responsible for the murders of up to eight women and one child, and let a potentially innocent man be executed for his crimes. His case is even more intriguing because it resulted in a significant shift in British law. But who was John Christie? John Reginald Christie was born on April 8, 1899, as the sixth of seven children in the West Riding of Yorkshire, England. Reg was his family and friends' nickname for him. There are some conflicting sources about his childhood. Some call it troubled, while others report it was fairly normal, but might have been abusive. According to Ramsland for Crime Library, Christie's father was a harsh man who beat his children whenever he pleased. He would also force them to march for long distances. Christie's mother embraced him close, while his father distanced himself from his son's fragility. Christie was his mother's personal favorite. She suffocated him with her overprotection, and his four older sisters bolstered this feminine influence, yet they still dominated him. Christie retreated within himself, and he learned to exaggerate signs or symptoms of ill health in order to gain attention and sympathy. He also developed an aversion to dirt. And despite being a loner at school, Christie excelled at math. He had an IQ of around 128, a number that put him in the top 5% of all of the United Kingdom. He was also a member of the choir and a King Scout, the highest rank achievable in the Boy Scouts. His maternal grandfather died when he was 8 years old. Christie was asked if he wanted to see the body that had been prepared for a wake. He stated that he did, and when he went to look at the man who had previously terrified him, he felt relieved. This was a fascinating experience for Christie. He began to play at the cemetery, especially with the broken vault that housed children's coffins. His lack of confidence also presented itself in sexual issues. Rumors began to circulate following his first sexual encounter at the age of around 16 or 17, and he quickly earned nicknames such as Can't Do It Christie. His sexual problems further added to his anguish, and his intimacy issues would follow him into adulthood. Many psychologists believe Christie developed a loathing and dread of women at this moment, and he could only perform sexually when he was completely in charge. He would drop out of school at around the age of 18 to work as a projectionist in a movie theater. Then came World War I, and he would join the army as a signal man, where he excelled at intricate work. He saw action when a mustard gas shell knocked him unconscious and temporarily blinded him, although no record of this blindness actually exists. 
He also lost his voice and was mute for a period of time, some even say as long as three years. But physicians found that this was a hysterical reaction rather than a genuine physical illness. Simply put, he was terrified and he feigned his condition. Christie would return home in 1919 and marry a woman named Ethel the following year. He then began work as a postman. However, his impotent issues persisted throughout his marriage. He appeared to only be capable of having sex with prostitutes. Furthermore, Christie becomes involved in a number of criminal activities. He is convicted of stealing postal orders while working as a postman and sentenced to his first stint in prison, three months. Following a string of theft and assault convictions, he is sentenced to multiple terms in prison, including six months hard labor for beating a prostitute with a cricket bat. His marriage to Ethel would dissolve in 1924, and she moved home with her mother in Sheffield. Later, Christy was released from prison in 1933 after serving another three-month sentence for motor theft. He and Ethel would reconcile and remarry in 1934, despite the fact that he would continue to use prostitutes. Christie applied to join the War Reserve Police, working at a constable at the Harrow Road Police Station during World War II. They would make no inquiries regarding his criminal history, which would have almost certainly precluded him from serving. And Christie would serve in this capacity for four years. Around the same time, he and Ethel moved into a new flat at 10 Rillington Place, the now infamous address where John Christie raped and murdered eight women between 1943 and 1953. Christie continued to seek out prostitutes in order to satisfy his increasingly violent sexual desires. He also had multiple affairs, including one with a woman at the police station where he worked. Christie was even attacked by that woman's husband when he discovered the affair. And Christie would commit his first murder in 1943. Ruth First was a munitions worker and part-time prostitute. Christie claims he strangled her impulsively during intercourse at his house. He would initially hide her body beneath the floorboards in his living room, but then buried the body in a shallow hole in his back garden. Christie would claim his second victim, Muriel Eady, in 1944. He would murder her with a tactic that he would later use on many of his other victims. He rendered her unconscious with gas, carbon monoxide. She was sexually abused and strangled to death. Her body was buried in the rear garden next to Ruth. Christie would go on to murder at least six more women over the next nine years, including Rita Nelson, Kathleen Maloney, Hectorina McLennan, and his own wife, Ethel Christie. However, the murders for which John Christie is most known for occurred in November 1949, and for which another man was hung. Beryl and her husband Timothy had moved into the top floor flat at 10 Rillington Place in 1948, where their daughter Geraldine would be born. Just over a year later, Beryl and Geraldine are both dead, and Timothy will be put on trial for their murders. Christie himself would testify as the prosecution's key witness. When the couple moved into Rillington Place, they were already in financial difficulty. Timothy had an anger and a drinking problem, and the birth of their daughter, Geraldine, in 1948, added to their already strained marriage. 
So when Beryl became pregnant for the second time in 1949, she opted to get an abortion, despite the fact that it was illegal. And it was John Christie who offered to do it. Later on, one evening when Timothy would arrive home from work, Christie informed him that Beryl had died during the abortion procedure and that he needed to hide the body. He also persuaded Timothy to stay in Wales with a relative and leave Geraldine in his care. The baby would never be seen again. Timothy would inform authorities a few weeks later that his wife had died under unexplained circumstances, but the story would alter numerous times during his interrogation. Timothy had an IQ of only 70, as opposed to Christie's 128, so people say he was easily duped, and after some intense police interrogation, he would falsely confess to his wife's murder. Timothy would change the story again, this time blaming Christie for the murder, but then he would go back to his first story, and then back to his second story again. And it's this second confession that prompted the authorities to conduct an inspection of the property surrounding the complex. Beryl and Geraldine's bodies were discovered, wrapped in a tablecloth in the wash house behind Ten Rillington Place. It was discovered that they had both been strangled to death. Timothy stated he had no idea his daughter had died until the police informed him. He assumed she was with Christy, who had simply refused to let him see her. Timothy Evans would stand trial at the Old Bailey on January 11, 1950, for the murder of his child, but the testimony would also include details around his wife's death. Again, according to Ramsland for Crime Library, Christie would be the prosecution's main witness. Prosecutor Humphreys wanted to avoid the kind of reason that the defense would have used in the case of Beryl, provocation, since that could lead to a charge of manslaughter and a lesser sentence. When two murders occur that are linked as part of the same transaction, evidence from both can be introduced. Because the child's murder was clearly cold-blooded and without reason, they determined it was the best one to pursue charges. Timothy's defense was taken up by Freeborough, Slack, and company, but no investigation was conducted. It seemed as if they assumed he was undoubtedly guilty and saw no reason to put forth any real effort. They didn't question anyone and they didn't investigate Christie's criminal history. The prosecution, on the other hand, had four different admissions from Timothy Evans, as well as evidence that corroborated what he stated. The jury would need only 40 minutes to reach a verdict. Guilty. Timothy Evans was quickly sentenced to death. Despite sticking to his story of innocence and filing one final appeal, he would be quietly executed on March 9th of that year. Now, if authorities had investigated Christie at the time of Beryl and Geraldine's murders, they might have saved the lives of at least four additional women, including the one for which Christie was eventually prosecuted and hung for, his wife, Ethel. Ethel Christie was strangled in bed by her husband on December 14, 1953, for unclear reasons. John Christie buried her under the living room floor floorboard to keep her death hidden for as long as possible. Christie was out of work at this point and sold his dead wife's jewelry for cash. He also impersonated Ethel and emptied her bank accounts. In the weeks following his wife's murder, he would strangle three additional women and hide their bodies in his kitchen's secret alcove. 
After falsely subletting his flat to a couple, an unemployed Christie ran out of money and left Rillington Place in 1953. The landlord quickly realized what Christie had done, evicted the couple, and let the above tenant use Christie's kitchen while the downstairs flat was vacant. The upstairs tenant spotted a hollow wall while putting up a shelf for his radio in the kitchen. He peeled away the wallpaper to reveal the secret alcove containing the bodies. A citywide manhunt for Christie began once police were alerted. He would be apprehended only a week later at a cafe near Putney Bridge. A newspaper clipping about Timothy Evans, the innocent man hung three years before, was in his pocket. Some authors believe that Christie was a necrophile, while others believe that any sexual intercourse with his victims occurred before their death. No one knows for sure, but he did keep the bodies close by. Christie would admit to all of the murders, including eventually the murder of Beryl Evans. However, he would only solely be charged with the murder of his wife, Ethel. Again, according to Ramsland for Crime Library, on June 22, 1953, Christie was tried at the Old Bailey for the murder of his wife. It was the same court that had heard Timothy Evans' case. The defense used all of the murders to demonstrate just how mad Christie must have been, and not angry, but insane. His own lawyers referred to him as a maniac and a madman. Dr. Jack Abbott Hobson, a defense psychiatrist, agreed. He claimed Christie was a serious hysteric who knew what he was doing at the time of each murder, but didn't realize it was bad. He had a mental impairment that prohibited him from completely comprehending the crime and the immorality of his actions. Dr. Matheson and Dr. Desmond Curran, both prominent physicians, provided rebuttal for the prosecution. Matheson agreed that Christie had a hysterical personality, but this was due to a neurosis rather than a flaw in his reasoning. Christie, in his opinion, was not mad. Curran considered Christie to be an insufficient personality with hysterical characteristics, but he also found no impairment of reason. The jury deliberated for only an hour and 20 minutes after a four-day trial. Their verdict? Guilty. He received the death penalty. Christie did not file an appeal, and there appeared to be no medical grounds for a stay of execution. On July 15, 1953, he was hung at Pentonville Prison by Albert Pierpoint, the same executioner who previously executed the potentially innocent Timothy Evans. We actually have an episode all about executioner Albert Pierpoint if you're interested in hearing his story. But following the conclusion of Christie's trial, there were two inquiries and two parliamentary debates to determine if Timothy Evans had been sentenced to death while innocent. It appeared incomprehensible that two men living in the same house could both be murderers and stranglers. After all, Evans had accused Christie of his wife's murder, and Christie had even confessed, though not to killing the Evans infant. The recorder of Portsmouth, John Scott Henderson, was assigned to investigate the matter and determine whether justice had been served. He was given only 11 days to evaluate all of the records. Henderson determined that Evans had indeed strangled his own wife and infant after conducting his inquiry. 
His report was released on the same day Christie was executed, sparking a dispute. Many individuals questioned what he said, and many authored books and essays to that effect. Another inquiry happened in 1965. A pathologist concluded after his investigation that again Evans had strangled his wife, but not his daughter. Christie did this and then persuaded Evans not to go to the police. Sir Daniel Braben, a high court judge, awarded Evans a posthumous pardon in 1966, which did not pronounce him innocent, but only innocent of the charge on which he was tried, murdering his daughter. In 2003, Timothy's sister and half-sister were awarded compensation for the injustice. It's unlikely that people will agree on the outcome of these inquiries or investigation, and the case will never be fully settled. The outrage about Evans' potential innocence contributed to the suspension and eventual repeal of capital punishment for murder the same year, a significant change considering Britain's dedication to execution since the 5th century. Christie's crimes appear to have shocked the nation into serious change. According to Jeffers for Ranker, Christie's home of horrors on Rillington Street retained its legendary status long after the neighborhood was demolished and rebuilt. A small area of grass and bush now stands where number 10 formerly stood. The home itself was demolished in 1970 and the street was renamed. After Rillington Place was flattened, Bartle Close and Andrews Square were built on top of it. Christie's residence even inspired a 1971 film, multiple books, Endless geographical conjecture, and a 2016 BBC drama showing Christie's psychological deterioration. While the prominent Notting Hill neighborhood has since been developed, the lot where Christie's mansion once stood remains vacant. No house, no plaque. Simply a silent and still homage to his victims, and to one of London's most notorious addresses. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Historical True Crime. We hope you've enjoyed the story of John Christie. If you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a suggestion of a case you'd like us to cover in an upcoming episode, you can reach us on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod or by email at Historical True Crime Pod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.